Hello, you're listening to Film Grades. I'm Sam. I'm Emmett, the boys from the band Phil Grades, and we're going to talk about film today. First, we're going to talk about Peter Strickland's fourth feature in Fabric concerning a bunch of great British actors and a killer dress. Yeah, then we're going to talk about the films of Jean-Marie Straub and Daniel Ie. Um, we're going to look particularly at History Lessons, their film from the early 70s about a journey through Rome and its history. Right, so in Fabric, it's about a killer dress, yes. basically. Or is it a killer dress, or is it a sort of malicious dress? It's more about enslavement, yeah. you know, yeah. than actual death. But there is there are some deaths in the film. Spoiler alert for this horror film. To, well, once now that we banged out the spoiler warning, I think we can need I to, jump we right need to, to the d- end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we did it with Vox Lux as well. It's the same thing. When when these like structurally audacious films come out, and that's all we want to talk about, you know. Well, I don't mean the second half of the film. I mean the very end where. They're all making the dress. Yeah, they're like, like, they're like ensnared in the yeah. in the logic of the dress. Yeah. <laughs> all right, let's backtrack a little bit though, if, um, if we must. You know, Peter Strickland, <laughs> right? Strong filmmaker. I guess I don't know what he's best known for, really. Probably maybe, Bavarian Sound Studio. Maybe Bavarian Sound Studio. Although yeah. Duke of Burgundy was probably more controversial I don't think it was popping enough to be controversial Mm. but I think most people who saw it appreciated it for what it was myself included yeah I mean it's great you're gonna love it (laughs) you're really gonna love it should we talk about Bavarian Sound Studio and how it relates to what he's doing in his fabric they they are quite comparable yeah I mean he has a clear streak throughout his work of being influenced by 70s exploitation films Mm. Argento and this yeah, and the the just sense of horror in these things. Mm. And I guess especially as they interact with the mundane in fabric, <laughs> it's got a sort of kitchen sinky element to it. As well as All this, the domestic like, scenes, yeah, 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 yeah. As well as this really overt sense of dread. I guess they do relate to each other in a way though, where she's being so challenged in the Marianne Jean Baptiste character. Mm, it is a really great, amazing performance. Great really actress. Good. I, I watched Secrets and Lies recently. I mean, she's no, done I haven't a lot, seen her in anything. A lot um, of great work, but I mean, she's a standout performance in the film. For sure, yeah. for sure. But yeah, she's got these issues with her son having a relationship with an older woman. Her son's like in sick form or whatever, and he's dating with like Gwendolyn Christie, yeah. <laughs> Brienne of Tarth, as yeah. like a goth. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Sort of witchy kind of jokes. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But basically, she comes across this dress. Yeah, she's, and she's she lonely. sees it in the sales, you know. Yeah, yeah, The yeah. sales are a sort of phenomenon that is interrogated in the film, the way people are drawn to things through, I guess, advertising and it's a, yeah. seasonal... It is a big social phenomenon, <laughs> though, isn't it, you know? Yeah. More and more so every year, Black Friday. Mm. But regardless, I can't remember, what's the name of the shop? In Thames Valley on Thames, that sells these dresses and is staffed... Oh, I don't know, but it is reminiscent of um, the sort of ancient department store on my local high street that has defied recession (laughs) and austerity and continues to, you know, push pastel-coloured garments on the 50 pluses. Strong look. Yeah, but they make it exceptionally creepy, don't they? Well, certainly when the 
the owner of the department store is introduced and having a wank watching all these fucking this mannequin menstruating. Yeah, I mean, it's a, there are some really surreal sequences in the film. Strickland, man. And it had, you know, this film, I didn't really appreciate it when I watched it, but the images have stuck with me. It's good to hear, man, because when we... I met you just out of the cinema, yeah. and you were not particularly enthused with what you'd seen. It was quite a funny watching experience. Total Film magazine, Bait magazine, but I definitely used to read it, and in their reviews yeah. they used to do that graph thing. Right, where oh, you yeah, like I chart do. how much you enjoy it. In the first 50 minutes to an hour, I was really along with it. There were things I was really appreciating. I thought the whole thing, the aesthetic, was really well-defined, great performances. But then something happens in the film, and then we essentially get the same thing again, but with different characters. A, a very similar story plays out with certain differences. For sure, it's centred on... A spectacled the, man called Reg Speaks. It still plays out as a sort of intersection between domestic life and this... What even is the, what even is the dress? It's the result of witchcraft, isn't it? Yeah. Um, the store clerks are super witchy. Like... Roald Dahl, the witches, witchy. <laughs> yeah, obviously asking questions like why when watching a film like In Fabric is besides the point, but does kind of make you want to know why. But yeah, yeah, it, there's, there's, you know, someone's plotting, but there's no big expositional moment where it's... And I value that, though. I don't want the creepy store owner to have a five-minute conference with his assistants <laughs> explaining what's going on. You just understand that they're exploiting the sale-going public. <laughs> I think I would have preferred this film if it was a mini-series where yeah. the world of the killer dress got to take on a few more victims, maybe. Because as it stands, this film is two incredibly similar episodes. Mm. And two is a strange number for that. It's you think maybe we'll split it into thirds, for example? The um, but Well, I think it's really trading off. Mr. Carmode says that it, it isn't riffing off David Lynch, but I think it definitely mm. is. Uh, Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive both trade off this device where there's a break in the film and the same thing happens or, or different things happen to the same people or essentially the same narrative is played out but with like a couple of different dynamics changed. But with this, you know, whereas Lynch like really uh, takes it as far as you can to make these things oppositional, you know, for whatever reason, this was just the same thing happening a, in the same A recapitulation place. for the sake of it. Yeah, it was fucking boring, man. Mm. <laughs> I had less of an issue with the structure when I was watching it, although, I don't know, I guess I just didn't know how long it was and I needed a piss. And when the second half started, I thought it was more of an epilogue. Me too. Um, but it was a full recapitulation. The second story with Hayley Squires. It was fine, like, it was good. But just structurally, I don't know, it was just... Fucked me up in a way. Mm, I mean, in Barbarian Sound Studio, mm -hmm. there is a similar tonal shift. Not tonal shift, but... Um, I mean, there's a sort of break in the story, at which point you could, like, get lost, potentially. But that is um, a really big difference between being outside the film and inside the film or whatever. You know? Yeah. And I couldn't, t I couldn't say what... Quite the, literally. The yeah, <laughs> I couldn't say what the crucial difference is between these two stories, or why he decided to tell... No. The same. He could have elongated the Marianne Jean-Baptiste story 
Because I already seen so, more minutes on it, yeah. and it would have been a really blessed, like cool. Shot. Yeah, I really do agree. Um, and they do give a sort of historical background to what's going on. It's not something that's just happened to her, mm. so we can understand it as a sort of sequential thing. Yeah, her story in the film is having things having having happened before and yeah. things having come after. If you've seen you know, Inland Empire, you'll know what it's all about. <laughs> but it just doesn't need to go down like that. We know she, like, she's investigating people that have had um, a similar experience to yeah. her, so we understand this. We can situate it. We don't need the immediate recapitulation. However, I mean, I did think it was amusing. And also, there are other... <laughs> amusing. There are also other things at the end which constitute like an exciting... Extended universe. What, wait, what? Looms to be sat at. Still. No, no, I was just going to say that when the shot... The, mm. There's a big sort of... Sequence oh, yeah. in the shop at the end, and it is a an end to what yeah, we're going yeah, yeah. to. Uh, it is like a conclusion, but that could have it's been part revolution. of the. Yeah, well, for sure. That's or, what I took from uh, it. I feel like the consumerist. <sighs> okay, but no, I, man. I wasn't really. I feel like it was clearly in the film the whole time, but like wasn't really getting his teeth sunk into it, and then it just paid off with this like scene of like people doing a madness in the department store, which like Ken Russell or someone would have built to like very deliberately but this just I kind of felt like it was coming the whole time but like yeah unless... they're like waiting at the door to, for it to open yeah. and then yeah. you know but yeah. at the end I would I really didn't feel like it had any sort of revolutionary properties if anything it was just being really critical of the people who mm. um, the patrons of the shop it reminded me of a scene in Broad City okay um, I don't know if you've seen this episode but some Something happens to one of the main characters, Top, so she needs to like get a new one while she's on the road. And they go to this like pop up shop, and um, there are just people like, It's mine, it's like, bitch! Yeah, um, and that's basically that's what happens that's at the end. That's what but, Black Friday is like, though, isn't it? You know, when you watch news clips and stuff. But, but that's the point Black Friday isn't a revolution. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, good point. Yeah. It's yeah, you're um, right. a fulfillment Very, of yeah, the promise what's, of the what's shop, supposed to happen. But if you compare it to a very, very, very aesthetically similar film like Ben Wheatley's High Rise, where a pretty similar thing happens at the end of the film, mm. and that takes on like an obvious like revolutionary dimension, and like these British films, all made by like you know he was a producer on this film. Yeah. There's like plenty of films that we could be talking about that like look kind of the same and have the kind same kind of like kitschy. Horrific elements. I'm talking, maybe it started with like the League of Gentlemen or whatever. I don't know. Maybe it's literally always been a strand in British cultural product. I don't know. Maybe it's because you know Steve Oram, Julian Barrett. These people just keep on. Yeah, they are great in this film. They are great in this film. I did really enjoy their sequences. Yeah. As the two bosses of the bank. I just think you know a film that's set in like exclusively in like banks and department stores. I'm expecting like you'd expect way more critical. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. <laughs> As opposed to just... Yeah. And the whole thing is just people towing the line, really. Mm. You know, apologising to their manager or... I don't know. But they yeah. do have this... There is some sort of reckoning at the end, but I don't... Yeah, it's nowhere near critical enough. It's not a upheaval, is it? It's just people looting. It's just what's supposed, <laughs> supposed to happen. Um, I feel almost fair in having these, like, huge structural problems with the film. 
Yes, you talk about what you what we liked about it. I I've got to say, I loved it. I did really, really enjoy it. I thought it was great. Yeah. Overall, I loved the aesthetics. Um, I didn't have a problem with the structure. Mm. I can understand what your issue with it, but at the time, I, I guess I just accepted it. I think you know. The first time I watched um, Celine and Julie go boating, I was probably like, "Why is this film so repetitive?" (laughs) And now I think it's the greatest film ever made. So maybe In Fabric will have us take on a similar thing. It certainly has. cultish properties mm. but I am fetishistic properties <laughs> yeah I mean it's definitely it's definitely going to find a big following yeah yeah, yeah um, sure. hopefully I, I still would rather people well, watching man. this and getting put on and uh, luckily Mubi gave us both of Peter Strickland's films back to back on streaming and then this as a free ticket for the week yeah Mubi go shout out um, my favourite thing about the film was a, the soundtrack by Cavern of Antimatter, Tim Gain, going from, you know, I Am A Wallet, McCarthy stuff in the 80s, Stereo Lab, Just Reunited, and yeah, I've been listening to some of his other music, really not a style I appreciate, but I thought the soundtrack was great for having the sort of kitschy, like finding the middle ground between like the music that Tim Gain is known for, the music mm. that would typically soundtrack this kind of like I mean, it's very goblin-y, isn't express- it? Yeah, it is, yeah. And, um, yeah, it suits the visuals. It was better than the fucking Tom York soundtrack for Suspiria. Was it? Is it actually bad? Well, I haven't seen the film, but yeah, it's, it's whack. Tim Shout Gale. out Jenny Greenman for keeping it on lock, though. I thought that was great. I also thought the sex scene was fire, and I very rarely enjoyed these sequences, but this was very beautiful. Yeah, 100% agree. Um, just loads of sort of transparent layers and really interesting visual effects. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't explicit, but it was, like, sensual. It was sensual, and it was also, <laughs> yeah, you felt it. You know? This yeah. is another thing, the, another thing that you just taken from David Lynch, though, which I, mm. I wouldn't say this, is, like, when you have these moments of extreme sincerity in, like, Twin Peaks or something like that, like... I wanted to cry when, you know, Marianne Jean-Baptiste said she, like, didn't need to go on fucking doing personal ads anymore because she'd met this prayer, you know. That was incredibly sweet and sincere. Yeah, And I assumed it meant they were going to get murdered in the next scene. But then an even sweeter sequence. I thought it was great. I am categorically bored of these British filmmakers exploring the kitschiness of the pre... the anticipating Thatcher aesthetic for horrific purposes maybe we can move on now what to beat no I mean us, us as a nation yeah to beat the post we'll do that in a bit you're still listening to film grace alright we're also going to talk about another recent UK film release Brian Welch's Beats Scottish film about raving culture set in the year the month when they made it illegal to play repetitive electronic beats in public. Yeah, the clampdown. It's an incredibly straightforward coming-of-age film. Probably the most gentle 18-rated film I've ever seen. 18? Yeah, it was an 18, bruv. Uh, because they do a... What could I say? Because they t- take a bean. No. Yeah, it's, it's literally rated 18. It was like a... Because they take a bean? Well, I don't know. Wait, really? I don't know, but it was definitely right. Maybe because they say cunt a lot, you know, in Scotland, you know. There's a, that word does get thrown about. Yeah, it's a PG in Scotland. <laughs> yeah. 
and it's a best foreign language film in the states or whatever you know? <laughs> um but yeah there were certain things about it that i appreciated such as the uh soundtrack supervised by jd twitch of optimo included a cover of the neutral milk hotel untitled song and also like some very well chosen raving tunes for the actual raven sequence yeah just not a culture state Nah. I don't know. I don't have any nostalgia for it, and it's nah. not something that, after the fact, I really like got involved with. I think it had things to say about how the people are still doing that thing today, are, you know, not really as progressive as mm. the people who were doing that, as they were, as if they were real social liberators, warriors, really at the edge. You know, like I feel like any sort of like social political dynamic that was made sort of deliberate from the very start, making it all about like the law that just got passed. In the introduction. And like the uh, sort of early third way politics, uh-huh. I guess. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was pretty or new there were sort of TV clips of Blair mm. like oh, yeah, sort of putting, putting, putting down his platform, you know. Yeah, but and, Blair um, was the most pro-cop of them all, you know. He was the British Prime Minister who increased the police budgets. So maybe if they would put that in there, maybe that was a suggestion that things cannot only get better um, one cool thing about the film was that it was uh, a black and white film until yeah actually, that's not the cool thing about it's it. not the cool thing it was the worst thing about the film but um, yeah it, it was not, it was cool to see a contemporary black and white film um, you don't really I, I, mean, I can't imagine it was a huge success but I still appreciated this kind of uh, I think it was yeah wrong. you're a big fan of Roma as well <laughs> yeah I loved Loved Roma. Well, love ripping the, on it. The spirit. No, I'm joking. Yeah. Uh, no, there aren't that many contemporary black and white films that I do enjoy. I really want to see The Lighthouse, though. Is that in black and white? Yeah. Um, it's all in black and white until the bit when he gets on it and goes to the rave, and then it's all in colour. Much like Andre Tarkovsky's Andre Rublev, but supplanting religious ecstasy in that film for its colour bit with just uh, ecstasy. But at least that was interesting. At least people are still doing these kind of things out here. That's Pete's. I mean, it's definitely come and gone. You're still listening to Film Graves with Emma and Sam from Phil Graves. Yeah, and now we're going to talk about the films of Jean-Marie Strobe and Daniel Huey. The, uh... <laughs> well, filmmaking couple, extraordinaire... Decades-long careers. Francais? They're French. They they're, French. Were, they're French. New wave adjacent, shall we say. Yeah. Do you want to... Well, I'm, I'm just saying, like, they kind of emerged around the same time as a lot of these, you know, very canonical filmmakers, Godard, Truffaut. Well, their first film was in 68, actually, which is traditionally, like, when the new wave was said to have died. But I'm reading a lot of, like, these Positif and Cahiers anthologies, and they come up a lot. Or, well, they don't come up a lot, but Jean-Marie Strobe comes up a lot, which I think is an interesting talking point, even though they are very clearly a creative partnership. Yeah, now there's, with these retrospective seasons that are going on Mm. across different platforms, and... It's pretty cool. Yeah, but they're being marketed as Strobe Yeah, and I think that's what they want. It's just going to sound different every time. You sure it is in Strauss? You sure it is that, like, German B? I'm sure. Okay. I don't know how to pronounce. Strobe like the strobe lights from Beats. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
exactly. But I think this is interesting because even though people talk about like Hitchcock and how like collaborative his work with, was with his wife Alma, he wasn't interested in making this a pronouncement. But you know, when you watch these films, you watch their you watch the credits for their films. It's very yeah. The co-authorship is yeah, clear. Absolutely, um, absolutely. But people, it was still resisted by critics at the time, which I find quite interesting. When people talk about the films of Strobe then compared to how they talk about a Strobe PA film, like a Powell and Pressburger film, or, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's how the purchase it has now, but I guess... It's, it's how they want it to be. What, as a, cup, as yeah. a pair? Well, yeah. of course. Maybe something to consider is, in this Ota new wave stuff, I guess, it is very much, I don't know, maybe it is quite a masculine sphere. Well, obviously there are exceptions. And yes, real. Yeah. yeah. Also, it's about like charismatic leaders, <laughs> um, yeah. which is like yeah. one person, you know. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, but so, they were also they were oppositional to a lot of these French New Wave filmmakers in a lot of ways. I think you hit the crux of it earlier, straight away. It's style of substance. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like the French New Wave. A lot of it was about sort of aesthetic breakthroughs, rewriting the language of cinema, but. Strobe may be more interested in... For sure, it's all about the ideas, I guess, and the theses of these mm. films. And which often are just the text. For sure, text I think that all else. the ones we've seen are all literary adaptations yeah. of works that we're not familiar with. Various sources. I mean, they, they made films out of, like, Engels' letters and stuff like mm. that. Or the letters of Anna Magdalena Bock which was their first feature film, The Chronicle of Anna Magdalena Bach, the first film that movie put on. I really, really, really enjoyed it, actually. More, I mean, they were very, I was, having, having seen a few, a couple more since, um, this was definitely the most pleasurable, um, but it really is all about the music or whatever. Mm. And the, the text of using Bach's wife's letters is kind of supplementary and as if it is to put, some dialogue, uh, not dialogue, monologue in a film that that I think, you know, to a certain extent, is kind of all about performing the, uh, is the music. Mm, not I've, all about that. And obviously her. I've, I didn't actually get to watch the whole thing, but I saw some sequences of and it. I mean, the opening sequences is right? this crazy 10-minute harpsichord passage. Yeah. That's... That's what the whole film is like. Yeah, it's really sensational. Um, but well, it does. It really brings the music alive in a way that, like, I didn't really think because I don't go to many like baroque concerts or whatever. Sorry, friend of the show, Matthew O'Keefe. Um, but I didn't know this music could actually be as entertaining as it was. And this is all. I guess they got one of the most talented players at the time or ever to play Bart. Can't remember his name. But yeah, a lot of extended sequences, you're just watching someone play the organ and it's really entertaining. Their films aren't characteristically entertaining though, are they? Um, no. So, But they are it, interesting. I mean, they are... Uh, sorry, saying something isn't entertaining sound about... Well, saying that about a film is not a huge compliment. Really I mean, if we're talking it, about the strobe hoo and we're like, oh yeah, it wasn't five bags of popcorn well exactly I, i'm a, saying i thought it was surprisingly entertaining when i knew it was going to be a rather rigorous academic exercise yeah. and i got enough pleasure just out of hearing this music watching uh, this um, music history lessons is a whole whole other thing really maybe we'll start this with by talking about mature kamuf 
Yeah, it's their first, their first film. Uh, it's a short, and well, God, I enjoyed watching Majorca Muth in 2019 because <laughs> I feel like we haven't. Maybe this is controversial. Hopefully, it is controversial. Um, it's all about uh, war criminals or a Nazi war criminal who is being made to uh, account for his war crimes and his like human rights abuses twenty years after. The end of World mm. War and again about the remnants of history. Yeah, Hannah Arendt ain't. <laughs> it's from the there's no it's rec- from the perspective of the. Yeah, Nazis. I mean he he comes away laughing, and that's yeah. what that yeah yeah it's pretty savage in terms of its composition though and structure. It is pretty dizzying. Yeah, certain certain episodes like they would they'd be, it's very elliptical. They'd skip five years and then they'd just be like mm. in a very. Orson Welles-esque style. Certain huge episodes are just rendered in, like, facial gestures or, like, throwaway lines of dialogue. And it's a short film anyway. But it definitely gets across their... I don't even want to say aesthetic projects. It's not even about aesthetics, but what they're trying to do, you know. It's all about interpretation and adaptation. I mean, it's an aesthetic project in a very uh, Walter Benjamin Uh Uh mode, you know. Uh Um, They are utilising like this medium to convey a political message of uh, what resistance. Well, they're making the, the, the cinema purposeful. It's almost a similar way to what Goddard was doing, but I couldn't, I mean, his films are... In a different way, yeah. Well, his films are pretty unwatchable by this, by this era, I feel. Oh, now. Made, made in right. USA and Vendest and this kind of thing. And actually, the... Strobier films are a lot more coherent and because I, I watched Not Reconciled and I found it pretty um, impenetrable. What's it about? Um, okay, it's about an architect who has to destroy a church that his father designed um, mm-hmm. as part of a um, engineering mm-hmm. tar- like deployment, mm-hmm. basically. But it's a sort of cross generational tale. Okay, the reason I found it quite hard to follow, firstly, they obviously have a sort of idiosyncratic approach to storytelling, which is fine. However, this is not helped by... Well, we watch, we're watching these films on, on movie, and they only seem to subtitle these films in a very selective way. Um, they do convey, in general, the message... The proper nouns are in there. <laughs> but we know German. It's sometimes they have a long word for... <laughs> I genuinely thought my, my stoner ass was just like, it's fine, German. Like, sometimes they just use long words and it takes a bit longer to express. It's really not the case. It's just really selective subtitling and it doesn't aid the viewer experience or comprehension and it does detract from the film. Especially when they use a lot of, like, 20-minute unbroken, like, using the whole reel of film to just record this guy almost in, like, a screen test way. Someone in costume saying something. Should we talk about history lessons? Well, yeah, I guess. I think it's the only feature film... Well, no, you were saying Not Reconciled as a feature? Uh, somewhere in between. I mean, you wouldn't call it a short film because it's 50-ish minutes. History Lessons is an hour and a half. Yeah. I guess that's... Classic Hollywood length. History Lessons was fantastic, I thought. Yeah, do you want to run... Okay, it's an adaptation of a uh, 
Bertold Brecht novel. I didn't even know this dude wrote novels. Um, and I certainly haven't read this, but I'm sure reading it would be a more elucidating experience than <laughs> reading the subtitles on movie, the ho- half of the subtitles on movie. What's it called? The Business Dealings of Julius Caesar. Yeah. The Business Affairs, which in itself is interesting because the, what, what is being discussed is so far away from Caesar's own recordings of his own history. It's, okay, the structure of the film. A guy's driving around Rome in these unbroken, really, they're amazing sequences. Yeah, 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 for sure. That's what, and that's what Italy is like. I love going to Italy, you know, because you try, there is not quite ruins, but like living history, you know, and Rome Mm, is like the Rome's the real prime example of that. That's like, you are driving around the Via Appia or whatever. You're driving down the same streets that like, Caesar's people would have been walking down 2,000 years ago. You were saying there was some interesting stuff on YouTube, recreations of... The yeah, there's this Vimeo um, woman, uh, video. <laughs> Sorry. Fuck YouTube. <laughs> <Lame>. <laughs> yeah, it was like 10 years ago, someone um, posted a video on Vimeo of them driving through Rome, recreating the... Um, the route taken by the character in the film. Mm. And, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's interesting to see. It's a good shot. Similar to uh, Solaris, it's a shot from the back seat of the car, just watching through the dashboard the streets go past. Yeah, watching the world go by and all yeah. the old Italian ladies hobbling around. Everyone walking gorilla, through the middle of the road. style filmmaking. Yeah. yeah, it's great. Okay, so these sequences... It's not the whole film, don't worry. These sequences frame... Conversations between the driver of this whip and Caesar's banker mm-hmm. and a slave. Yeah. Um, who What's was his name? Gaius something. And there's another one, a soldier. There are three. It's mostly about the banker guy, though. Yeah, he he's, does. Yeah. Pretty much all the talking. <laughs> yeah. And this is why it's such a dialogue-heavy film. So it's just really disappointing when the presentation of it. You get the point, though. However many subtitles there are. However accurate the subtitles are, you get the idea of what they're trying to do. Well, exactly. And, I mean, the thesis is war is a racket, basically. Yeah, it's a money-making exercise. And that's very rigorously put out. Very much so. This, This is what the history lessons are, is history, even in the Roman times, when you would imagine economics was less of a transparent issue, was still the crux, and things today haven't changed. It's still all about economics, whether you're, whether Charles de Gaulle is your leader or Julius Caesar. Just in terms of thinking about this as a uh, history film, mm. like a very nebulous genre. Your favourite genre? No, not necessarily, but... It, your favourite and least favourite genre. Yeah, because <laughs> I studied history, I bring questions from the discipline of course. to films, you know. In the same way, if you're, well, you know... This is how it goes, I guess. Yeah. And yeah. Um, Same with the lit- literature. Well, exactly. Um, but Strobouillet, would you say they're historiographical, historiographical, <laughs> historiographical project is noble for trying to represent the words said? Because I feel like from a costume and settings thing, you know, they're setting this thing in modern Rome, but ancient Rome. Well, no, it's not. This is what I was, what I wanted to touch on really quickly. It's, the guy's driving around, and he's arriving, and he's wearing a suit, he's got a blazer yeah. swung over his shoulder, and he's interacting with these characters in period dress. Mm. They're all talking in German. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's... <laughs> it's 
It is a literary exercise mm. as much as a historiographical one. Um, but there is a clear left-wing project involved. A class clearly. consciousness. Yeah, exactly. And look, coming up on Mubi, class relations, workers, peasants... Uh, and communists. These are all know, titles of these are titles of their films coming up in the next um, like ninety days or something. Oh, um, great! Yeah, I mean it's a very overt project, but in it's not all they did though. They did also adapt a bunch of like bourgeois Schoenberg, you know, atonal operas as well. Mm. But culture is a different thing. In if you were a fucking very okay, uh, if just to touch on the um, on that. Mm. The cult, <laughs> the cultural critics of the Frankfurt School, mm. including Adorno. Adorno was taught by the composer. Um, what's his name? Al- Alan Berg. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. Have you heard his shit? Yeah, yeah. Um, I have uh, music GCSE. Uh, yeah, that's what Mills uh, and Aaron uh, is like, man. Uh, yeah. Well, I know, but the, okay. So these cultural critics, purportedly left-wing critics, yeah. and the I guess high-minded. Well, for sure, it is still bourgeois. Esoteric. Yeah. It's not like the music of the people. Well, certainly not. (laughs) There was an attempt in the Chronicle of Anna Magdalena Bach to like uh, make Bach, make Bach's music appeal, but obviously like this wasn't competing with like Doctor No or whatever. You know, I mean, Bach's playing in the film plays out in the chambers of the and the concert halls at the churches or whatever. But people are responding to the music. People are hearing it. Mm. Sorry, I really deviated from your. I don't think speech is central, really, to... And if it is... If we spoke German, it would be completely different. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, true. But as it is, movie are doing a disservice to these films. I agree. Unfortunately. Um, It's quite interesting. Shout out, movie, though. (laughs) Shout out, movie, though. This podcast probably wouldn't exist without movie. I do want to say something that's interesting from the, the perspective of a fan of repertory cinema programming, both local and digital. Like London buses, you wait for one strobe Huye season to come along and three come along at once. I don't, I can't tell if this is an effort from the strobe Huye. They're both deceased. No. No? Uh, I think Jean-Marie is still alive, potentially. I think he's definitely dead. He out. He outlived Daniel Huye. If you're listening... I don't have a phone right No, because he... So sorry, he continued making yeah, films on Yeah, he continued making films, but I think he... And I think that was quite recently. Deceased. But, yeah, okay. I think the last film coming on movie is from 2009. We're probably going to edit this sequence out, I feel. I think he's dead. Okay. <laughs> so you wait for ages for a strobe PA retrospective to come along, and you're inundated, you know? We went from Kubrick, Claire Denis being the cineaste du jour... We're getting put on by everyone around us. And now, you know, the BFI, the ICA, the close-up and MUBI are all doing Strohier retrospectives. I don't know if that's because their project was is particularly relevant or just people are ripping each other off or if it's an effort from the archives and estates to do a bunch of restorations of their work. Either way, I hadn't seen any of their work before. I think, yeah, I mean, we can't complain. It's we can't it's great. I'm looking forward to more. Maybe yeah. there'll be a part two on the film grays when we've seen uh, some of the opera ones. Maybe we'll just do the operas in it. Three Schoenberg operas by Strobe no. and <laughs> no. And then we can do the the Venom review. Great. Yeah. Still listen to Film Grays with Emmett and Sam from Phil Graves. 
do go check out especially history lessons because it's got a lot to say yeah absolutely Oh, shit. What? We haven't even spoken about the most jokes part of History Lessons. Yeah, okay. Which, we... History Lessons is admittedly a quite austere film. Um, Certainly, despite the silly costumes. Yeah. Funny thing happened on the way to the forum, Life of Brian vibes. Or yeah. So right at the end of the film, there's uh, a... <laughs> Just as the banker character has finished his monologue about how his bank benefited ultimately from the imperialistic warmongering of Julius Caesar's Caesar, Reich, the yeah, yeah. there's a jump cut. One of the greatest cuts, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you referenced the end of Andre Rublev earlier as a sort of transcendental moment. Mm. Um, this is really the opposite. The opposite. Right. <laughs> it frames what you've seen, but as completely anti-transcendental. It's bullshit. What you've been hearing is bullshit. Yeah, because this and is... it's just fabrication, imagination, reinvention, or just truth that's ugly. I.e., we've benefited from war. Um, the cut is this fountain. Um, it's not the Trevi okay. Fountain, but it's like no, some... it's called like the Big Mask Fountain yeah, or something. Seventeenth yeah, 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 yeah. century, just a big face, <laughs> and uh, is constantly like... spewing out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just making is... like a face. Yeah, a horrible face. It's great. <laughs> yeah, it's a great last well, shot, and I guess you know. It just completely reframes the film when you're watching it. And, like, I didn't laugh when I was watching the film. I was stroking my chin quite a lot. And I was frowning when the subtitles weren't where they were meant to be. But at the end, I did laugh, like, quite consistently um, for, like, a minute. Yeah. <laughs> just because the shot goes on for ages. And um, it, it has the sort of ecstatic chorus um, yeah. on top of it. It's just such a hilarious moment. For sure. And I guess, you know, we is if it is the same guy, the same figure in this fountain, and you've been... Not that his face, that is, you know, the water is coming out of his mouth or whatever. We are, if it is the same person, or the, the depiction of the same figure, then, and all his words are just a constant stream, mm -hmm. maybe it does play up my interpretation that it's actually not what they say that matters, you know, because it's just, uh, history doesn't matter. Maybe that's the ultimate history lesson. Yeah. It's just reduced to ceremonial culture and uh, people are just like looking at that. <laughs> yeah, the so artifacts the, of the rich. You know, so maybe... The Barnese. So maybe the end of history lessons does... Well, I guess it counteracts what they're saying largely by bringing this text and bringing history and bringing evidence to life. But they're also saying that you can still take it or leave it. Mm. I wonder how that ending is. Um, I wonder how it ends in the Brecht novel because I can't imagine film having the same impact or the text having the same impact For without sure. that moment, that recontextualization. Anyway, fantastic. The films are strobe Go check them out. Yeah. More film greys coming. We're going to talk about the films of Louis Bunuel. We're going to talk about another movie retrospective. We're going to talk about High Life and talk about. Rotten Romans. Fuck yeah. I've been Emmett. I'm Sam. Uh, new Phil Graves music coming soon. If you want to book Phil Graves, 
<laughs> please do it. We really want to play some rock and roll shows. <laughs> cool. Lots of love, listeners. Thank you.